Okay, uh, good evening everyone. I think uh, there might be some more people coming in, but I thought since we have some housekeeping um, requests as well, so I'll start with those and then probably by five past six we'll be actually ready uh, to kick off. So first of all I'd like to uh, welcome everyone to today's talk. My name is Amnon uh, Aran. I'm uh, normally based at City University, uh, but given the intriguing nature of this evening's talk, I decided to uh, come here uh, and listen to it and indeed share it. Uh, first of all, I'd like you to ask you, please, if you could follow my fine example and turn off your phones, if you haven't done that already. And in the unlikely case of a fire, uh, there are some stairs next to the lift, so we can all uh, go there orderly and, and hope for the best, um, as it were. Um, but more importantly, I'd like, first of all, to introduce today's uh, uh, speakers, and we're very fortunate to have them here um, on my far right, uh, not necessarily representing any uh, opinions, I suppose, is uh, uh, Professor Yoav Peled. He is an emeritus professor of political science at Tel Aviv University. Um, his interests uh, include citizenship and ethnic politics in Israel and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And um, I at least enjoyed very much reading uh, his work on globalization, on being Israeli, so it's a great pleasure to be here. And one step to my right, Orit uh, Herman Pellet, who is a Tel Aviv media artist and peace activist, and she teaches digital art and theory um, of digital culture at the Art Institute at uh, Oranim College uh, in Israel. So really, really happy to have uh, both of them uh, here. Uh, basically, what we're going to have is uh, each of them will talk for approximately 25 minutes, and then we'll open it up for a Q&A. We have a roaming uh, mic at the back, so once we get to that stage, uh, I'd encourage you to use it. Uh, last but by no means least, I'd like to just point your attention to the fact that Yohav has just recently published uh, 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 his most recent publication on a topic that may interest you. I'm sure you haven't heard about it, Israel and Palestine. Um, alternative Perspectives on Statehood, and it's edited, um, an edited volume. So if anybody's interested in it, um, I strongly recommend that you go and buy it by Amazon or any other means that you have uh, available. So now, without any further ado, I'll hand it over to our speakers, and I'm sure you're joining me in welcoming them here to London. Thank you very much, and uh, thank you, everybody, for coming. What we're going to present is a very much work in progress, so many of the things we're going to say will be uh, of a tentative nature. Also, it's a book project, and we have to present it in 50 minutes, so we'll have to be very telegraphic on many, many of the issues. Okay. Sorry. During uh, Israel's uh, punitive punitive uh, expedition into Gaza in the summer of 2014, the commander of the infantry brigade, Givati, issued uh, what is called a battle sheet in which he called upon his uh, soldiers, as you see in red, to go and fight those who defame, defiles, and insults the God of Israel and called upon God itself to help him and his soldiers fight an enemy that defiles your name. This was uh, an unprecedented call for religious war from uh, such a high-ranking officer. There may have been uh, cases like that before for most junior officers, but 
never at this level, this uh, caused an uproar in the, what you may call the enlightened public. I mean, the same kind of public where the election of Trump caused an uproar. But, uh, but this uh, commander, Colonel uh, Offer Winter, was not reprimanded uh, for that. He was actually promoted. He's now a brigadier general. He's now the chief of staff of the Central Command. The Central Command, as many of you know, actually is the sovereign in the West Bank. Now, even though this created an uproar, it's only one very uh, limited indication of a very profound and widespread process of religionization that Israeli society, actually Jewish Israeli society, this is what we're talking about. Of course, there's a parallel process among the Muslims in Israel, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about the Jews. And there there's, has been a very profound and widespread process of religionization. Now, in other contexts, religionization is called desecularization. We don't call it desecularization because we don't think Israeli society or the Zionist movement, for that matter, uh, were ever secular. But they are becoming, uh, the state of Israel, the Jewish sector of Israeli society is becoming more and more religious. This uh, is manifested in many, many areas. I will just mention a few in the military. About, it's estimated about 40% of the junior commanders in the infantry brigades up to the level of company commander are now religious Zionists. Religious Zionists means they're either West Bank settlers or politically sympathetic to the West Bank settlers. Uh, among the graduates of the infantry branch of the IDFs, IDF is the Israeli military, Israel Defense Forces, uh, among the graduates of the infantry branch of that school, 50% are religious Zionists. Now, this, of course, raises the issue of when the time comes, will these uh, officers obey their commanders or the rabbis? I think not uh, in the, in the not-too-distant future, the commanders will be rabbis, but uh, for the time being, they are not identical, so there's a question, will they obey the rabbis or will they obey the commanders? Uh, in the media, in the mass media, uh, the appearance of, of religious and even uh, ultra-Orthodox reporters, anchor people, uh, commentators, all kinds of things, uh, you see more and more religious people. This was never, did not exist before until a few years ago. The education, Israel has uh, for the Jews two educational systems, two state educational systems a religious and the secular. The secular is becoming more and more religious. I mean, there's more and more religious content in the secular educational system. In popular culture, you cannot be a popular singer in Israel today if you don't say that, you don't at least say that you're becoming more religious. This is almost a precondition for being a popular singer. Horet will talk about, uh, very specifically in great detail, about the art field. The art field also uh, is undergoing this process. In terms of uh, food, in the 90s, it was hard to find a kosher restaurant in Tel Aviv, at least a good kosher restaurant in Tel Aviv. Now, uh, this, this was in the media very much in the last few days. Non-kosher restaurants in Tel Aviv are either closing down or becoming kosher. So very few are remaining non-kosher. Just, I think, yesterday there was a big story in the in the public broadcasting uh, channel about the a campaign against the selling of pork everywhere. 
not just, of course, not in, only in religious neighborhoods and so on, but everywhere in the country. There's a, there's a big, uh, very strong pressure to, to, on stores and butcheries to stop selling pork. So all of these are indications that the, the basic outlook of Jewish Israeli society is becoming more and more religious. And our question, of course, is why, why is that happening? This is the interesting question. Now, a few preliminary words. <coughs> our understanding of religion follows uh, Talal Assad. Talal Assad famously said, there is no such thing as religion with a capital R, which is trans-historical and trans-cultural. The meaning of the term religion is specific, it's context-specific, and you have to understand it in its specific social-historical context. So in the way we see Israeli-Jewish uh, Israeli religion, Israeli-Judaism, it is not a private religion, well, Judaism in general is not a private religion except those who protestantized it, the reforms, but in Israel this is certainly not the case. In Israel, uh, Judaism is a state religion and it's a national religion. And this is very, very significant for what is happening. In terms of uh, the relations between religion and nationalism, uh, a colleague of mine, Ariela Bulov, a name that uh, some of you may, have, may be familiar with. He distinguished between two types of relations between religion and nationalism. He called, it, he called one of them religion as a resource for nationalism, a resource that provides myths, symbols, and so on. The other one he called the chosen people. In the chosen people type of relation, religion is not a resource for nationalism, it is the source of nationalism, and naturally this is what uh, we argue is the case with Zionism. Zionism is a chosen people type of movement in terms of its relations with Jewish religion, even though Zionism liked and still maybe likes to present itself as modern, secular, and so on. In reality, as much as, as it wanted to get rid of, uh, <coughs> of the Jewish element in it, of the religious element in it, it, it could not do so. And it could not do so for, for two reasons that I will mention in a second. But just before I do that, I want to just briefly uh, introduce the types of religiosity that prevail among Jews in Israel and the numerical relations between those different types. And at two points in time, this is uh, how people define themselves in terms of religiosity when they are asked, and then you see the categories, ultra-Orthodox, modern Orthodox, which are religious Zionists, traditional, traditional are mainly people who came from the Muslim countries, secular, and secular anti-religious. Now, you will see that there is a, a, a decline between 1999 and 2009 in the religious, sorry, in the secular category. It was all seculars together were 52% in 1999. There were 46% in 2009. Now, this is by self-definition. But if you inquire, not how you define yourself, but what do you do? Because Judaism is a religion of practices. It's not a religion of faith. It's a religion of practice. 
then you see a very different picture. You see that in 1999, you, there were only 23% who said, who are really secular in the sense that they don't observe any of the religious practices. In 2009, only 16%. And here there's a summary. You see clearly <coughs> the, the difference in terms of the difference, I'm sorry, the difference between how people define themselves and how people actually are in terms of what they practice. So in terms of what they, they practice, in 2009, 84% fall into the religious categories. Okay, now, now about the reasons why Zionism could not rid itself of the religious element, of Jewish religious element. Well, two primary reasons. One is, if Jews are a nation, and Zionism is the first and only political movement that said, that defined Jews as a nation, if Jews are a nation, they must have one cultural marker in common. A nation cannot exist if it doesn't have at least one cultural marker in common. Jews don't have any cultural marker in common except Jewish religion. So if you want to say that Jews are a nation, then you cannot ignore the fact that what binds them together as a nation is only the religion. This is one reason. The other reason is the claim to Palestine. The claim to Palestine, Jewish claim to Palestine, is based on religion. It's based on the Bible. So without that, uh, you don't have a legitimate claim on the, on the land. Now, I just want to very briefly, well, sorry, this is uh, something I should have put on before. This is the, <coughs> the, the birth rates of the different religious categories. It's very clearly see that the more the, the top is the most religious, the bottom is the least religious. The most religious have many more children. By the way, uh, Israeli uh, the fertility rate of Israeli women is very high compared to uh, Western countries. It is 3.13, 3.13 children per woman. There is uh, equality now between Jewish and Arab women in that regard. This is very high compared to, to Western societies. But so part of, the part of the process of religionization is the more religious people are becoming, are increasing because of a higher birth rate. But that's only a sm relatively small part of it. Now, these are some indications of the relation between Zionism and Jewish religion. At the beginning, religious Jews and the vast majority of, of Jews were religious when Zionism appeared at the end of the 19th century. They, op they opposed Zionism because Jews were not supposed to go back to Zion before the Messiah came. Now, uh, Herzl and other leaders of the Zionist movement realized that if they claim to speak for a Jewish nation, they have to have some people who really look like Jews among them. Herzl himself and most of the other leaders did not look like Jews. They looked like any other uh, bourgeois European. So they made tremendous efforts to recruit at least some rabbis, and they were successful to a very limited extent, but they, in order to do that, they made concessions to the 
religious, even though they themselves were not religious at all. So this is just a few indications. In, in the Second Zionist Congress, it was already declared that Zionism will not act in any way to infringe upon the Jewish religion, even though Zionism saw itself as a revolution against traditional Judaism. Then, in 1920, the educational, the educational autonomy of the religious Zionists was guaranteed. This is the religious state school system today. Okay, I'll go on because time is, is running out. The most uh, important document in that respect, however, and I would say the most important constitutional document of Israeli history, is the status quo letter sent in 1947, before the establishment of the state, from the Jewish agency executive head headed by Ben-Gurion to the, the ultra-Orthodox political party, Agudat Israel. And in that letter, the Jewish agency promised that the status quo prevailing during the mandate, during the British mandate, would remain in these four areas. Family law means marriage and divorce would remain the exclusive, exclusive jurisdiction of rabbinical courts. Saturday would be the official Sabbath day. Kashrut, Jewish dietary laws will be maintained in all public kitchens, meaning military kitchens primarily, and the ultra-Orthodox educational system, which is another one, not the same as the national religious, would be maintained. It is maintained today. It is autonomous until today. Autonomous means it's financed by the state, but the state cannot say what's going on in there, what is being taught there. And this is a, another big issue. In later years, there were more, uh, two more areas, issue areas that were added to the, to the privileges, I would say, of the Orthodox. Ultra-Orthodox <coughs> yeshiva students, yeshivas are seminaries for rabbis, ultra-Orthodox yeshiva students, which means all young males among the ultra-Orthodox are exempted from military service which is a very big issue, you'll see in a minute why, and the law of return, which initially did not define a Jew, the law of return gives every Jew in the world the right to come to Israel and become a citizen upon arrival. Initially, it did not define who is a Jew. In 1970, the definition was uh, introduced, was added, were added, and the, the definition was, is, the religious definition is Jew, a Jew is who is anybody born to a Jewish mother? You may ask, and how do you know that the mother was Jewish? Because she was born to a Jewish mother. And how do you know that? Because she was, in other words, it's a purely tautological definition, but never mind, this is in the law. This uh, gives you the numbers of the ultra-religious yeshiva students exempted from military service. And I, I will just say that in 2010, it reached 13% of the draft eligible cohort, which is a very high proportion. This is why it became a very big issue. Now there is a somewhat of a decline because there's a lot of pressure on them to, uh, <coughs> to, to serve in the military and the other issues involved, which I will not get into it. Okay, however, for many years, this religious element, this Jewish religious element of Zionism and the State of Israel was repressed, subdued, underplayed, marginalized, however you want to call it. 
because of, of a number of reasons. First of all, Zionism saw itself as a revolution against traditional Jewish life in the diaspora. It had a very strong element of negation of the diaspora, and Jewish life in the diaspora meant Jewish religion. <coughs> Zionism developed a concept of the new Jew. The new Jew would be very different than the old, weak, feminine, so on Jew of the diaspora. The new Jew will be uh, strong, athletic, uh, courageous, and so on and so on. And of course, not being religious, being secular, was part of it, because this was negating the old Jew. There was also a need to build a modern nation state, and religion, I mean, too much religion, too much religion in the public sphere would have interfered with that. And there was also the matter of international legitimacy, the UN Partition Plan of 1947, which was the legal basis for the establishment of Israel in international law, talked about uh, uh, basically a liberal democratic state. Of course, Israel was never a liberal democratic state, but at least it had to uh, appear as if it is not a theocracy. And in the negotiations leading to that partition decision, they promised the representatives of the Jewish agency promised that it will not, the new state will not be a theocracy. So this, this is why the religious element was downplayed. And now it's coming back. This is the, this is the high point of the story. <coughs> but it's coming back was predicted, and this is very interesting. It was predicted by two, I would call them sages. One of them was uh, Gershom Sholem, a very, very prominent um, scholar of Jewish mysticism and Jewish philosophy. And in 1926, he already said about the attempt to secularize the Hebrew language. He said, the Zionists believe that they are secularizing the Hebrew language, turning into a day-to-day -day language, but this in the long run is not going to work. In the long run, the religious essence of Hebrew language, and by Hebrew language you can understand Jewish culture as a whole, will reassert itself it will reassert itself and it will bring our children and, get, and grandchildren to an abyss, which they will not be able to deal with. So this is Gershom Scholem, who, by the way, was a Zionist. He was a very liberal Zionist, but a Zionist. By the same token, this very, very prominent uh, rabbi, Rabbi Cook, who was chief rabbi during the mandate, he said the same thing, as you can see, but of course he said it hopefully. He didn't see it as a, he wasn't alarmed by it, he was encouraged by it, that eventually even the Zionist pioneers, the labor Zionist pioneers who are very secular, are going to realize that they are doing the work of God and they will become religious again. So what is now happening was predicted by, by these two sages. Now, the re-emergence or reassertion of religion, the, the key turning point is 1967. I'm sure everybody knows 1967, why it is so important. And it took two forms. One form was the religious Zionists taking the lead in the Zionist project. 
and they took the lead by beginning to settle in the West Bank as soon as the war was over. And there was, the war was over in the West Bank in four days. Why did they, I mean, what, what enabled them to do that? What enabled them to do that, primarily, was that the labor Zionist movement that played the, reading, the leading role in the Zionist project for at least 40 years before that was split internally was split internally about the future of the occupied territories, of the occupied Palestinian territories. They could not decide among themselves what to do, keep them or return them. This internal split caused the labor Zionist movement to be paralyzed. And into this paralysis, into the vacuum created by this paralysis, moved the religious Zionists, who immediately started setting up settlements in the West Bank, legal, illegal, semi-legal, doesn't matter. They always got the support of the government, even when the government declared that it was illegal. This gives you the numbers of the number of settlers today, and this tells you exactly how, uh, what the chances of the two-state solution are with quarter of a million Jewish settlers in the West Bank, including what Israel defines as Jerusalem. The other aspect, the other head of religionization is people who are secular or semi-secular or think of themselves as secular becoming more and more religious. This is called in Hebrew tshuva. Tshuva means both an answer and a return, a return to religion. This is a quote from the sociologist who was the first one to study this phenomenon. And she says the 1967 war together with the 1973 war, which of course were total opposites in terms of the <coughs> fortunes of uh, Israel's fortune in these two wars. This, is, this created a legitimacy crisis because the belief that Zionism can secure the security of the Jews in Israel began to be undermined. But there's also another element sh that she doesn't mention here, and this is uh, moral compunctions about the treatment of the Palestinians, and I will not get into the evidence for that, but believe me, there is evidence for that too, as a contributing factor to this uh, return to religion among people who were not at least uh, openly religious before. Now, uh, these are the numbers of people who... Uh, <coughs> are ballet tshuva or penitents, or some call them converts. You, you see the growth in, in 2010, the figure that I put is the net figure. In other words, these are people who became more religious minus the people who became less religious. All of this by, by self-definition. So the net is 261,000. If I if I had not deducted the ones who became less religious, the number, of course, the figure would have been much higher. And uh, I don't know if you, everybody can see that. I don't think everybody can see that. This is not just a spiritual matter. This is also a big business. The, the tshuva movement, the operation of bringing people back to religion is budgeted, it is estimated that it is budgeted in the, in the area of 60 million, if I translate it to British pounds, 60 million British pounds a year about half of it state money and half of it private donations. So to, to sum up, because I'm running out of time, 
what we are arguing is, is, is the Zionism and the State of Israel were never secular. There was always a religious, a Jewish religious uh, substructure to it. But this was subdued, repressed, or whatever for a long time. And since 1967 or 1967-73, it began to reassert itself in two ways. <clears throat> Religious Zionists becoming much more important politically within many, many areas of, the, of Israeli society. And more and more people who used to be secular or used to think of themselves as secular are becoming more religious. So this is the process of religionization. Thank you very much. Okay, I will speak on the process in, I think, one of the last uh, spheres or fields that the process is taking place, and that's the art field. Like religion, art creation is embedded in both the rational and irrational, or the imaginary. When an artwork is chosen, to be canonized, it entails the means of inclusion and exclusion, which construct the cultural hegemony. For more than eight decades, artwork produced by religious Jewish artists were excluded from the Israeli art field and were not included in the canon. Although religious, mainly biblical themes, were scattered in many works through the decades. In the last several years, the cultural secular hegemony, hegemony, hegemony is being contested in the political sphere, in the cultural and educational spheres, and in the content of the artworks. Abraham Levit, a revisionist scholar, offered a new narrative for the historical dynamics of the Israeli art field in an article titled, The Israeli Art on Its Way to a Different Place published in Tchelet Journal in 1998. Uh, Levit denoted the production of contemporary Israeli art as degenerate processes and suggested five stages to describe the historical dynamics of the field. In the first period, 1906 to mid-1920s, the Jewish community in Palestine, led by, led, led by the artist and visionary Boris Schatz had two aims. One, to invent an imaginary visual lingua franca, which will incorporate the quote, end quote, authentic biblical visual symbolism. To produce Jewish, and the second one is to produce Jewish crafts decorated by the new symbolic visual language for the local and international uh, market. The materialization of the plan necessitated the emergence of a new human being, not the stagnant, deterritorialized Jewish body in Jerusalem, as well as in the diaspora. The old Jew had to metamorphose from organs without body into a body, to borrow, to, uh, 
to borrow a Deleuzean concept. The construction of the visual lingua franca required, according to Schatz, a creative visual translation of textual descriptions of objects and symbols prevailing in the Bible. And what we can see here is an example of that. Here we see a biblical imaginary figure by the name of Bezalel. He was assigned by God to build and design. He was the architect and designer of the tabernacle in the, in the desert. And here we see Professor Boris Schatz that is being delegated that. And here, of course, are symbols from the Bible. So, of course, we can see that uh, the, the, the vision was visualized in a Eurocentristic language of the time. This is what it's called um, Jugendstil uh, style. It's like Art Nouveau style. Okay. Exiled by the Ottomans at the end of World War I, Boris Schatz, who in 1906 founded the first art and crafts academy in Palestine, was roaming the northern part of Palestine and there he composed a visionary text titled Rebuild Jerusalem, Jerusalem, a daydream. In Rebuild Jerusalem, a daydream, Schatz envisioned a highly social, economic, and cultural modern city in the eastern part. The third temple, or the Beta Mikdash, had to be, uh, be uh, rebuilt or built. And there will be no animal sacrifice to the monotheistic God. Instead, the temple will be immersed in Jewish artistic creativity. In addition, an adjunct to the temple, a whole complex of modern architecture institutions will be built, such as a global center for peace, a university, cottage industries, and more. And as for Omar Musk, as you can see here, or what is called in Hebrew, the Harabait, to Jews, Harabait. Um, and I'll quote him, he said, in the west side of the city, across from the Jaffa Gate on the mountain, recognized by the lower pool, it's somewhere over here. I could spot the proud dome of Omar Musk. Omar Mask, which previously was erected on Temple Mount and was transferred to the beautiful mountain as a memento token to the Arabs, our good neighbors who guarded and preserved our holy places with great devotion. Okay. <clears throat> now, the next stage, according to Levit, began in the second half of the 1920s. In that stage, the art field contemplated the landscape in a Eurocentristic fashion, and the visual plan of the works was mostly devoid of national and biblical signifiers, and very much like what at that time was seen in Paris and other uh, places uh, of European art. So here we see a, a painting of a train roaming the first uh, um, neighborhood in Tel Aviv, Nevet Tzedek, or another Orientalist painting, very nice one, of the Lake Kinneret, and here you can see how they visions the, the, the locals. Okay. 
However, there was always the biblical contextualization as a basis for the formative idea of the new Jew. The third stage, Levit argues, transpired in the 30s with the influx of German Jews to Palestine, those refugees fleeing Nazi Germany discovered a growing interest in the material aspect of the land without bonding with the Jewish people. In their art, they projected, as we can see, oh, I just uh, skip it because I don't have time. They projected um, repugnance towards the undeveloped place and Zionist ideology proclaimed by the all-student leadership, such as the morbid feeling in the woodcut that we see here by a very major artist, German-Jewish artist, who, fl who fled Germany, Steinhardt. And this is a morbid kind of a visualization of the old city of Jerusalem. The iconic sculpture, this one, it's called Nimrod, a landmark of Israeli art, was sculpted in 1938-39 by Yitzhak Danziger, a German refugee. He was a member of the New Hebrews, dubbed Canaanites by their opponents. The biblical character Nimrod is described as a mighty hunter before the Lord. His name comes from the word to rebel, and in Talmudic literature, he is is the despised idolater who tried to erect the Tower of Babel in order to overthrow God. Nimrod of Namrud in Arabic also featured in ancient Near Eastern mythology as a mighty figure with divine powers. He is portrayed as a hunter, warrior, whose bow has become his backbone. Danziger took the hawk on Nimrod's shoulder from Egyptian art, underscoring the link between his sculpture in the ancient pagan world. In other words, this is a representation of an expression to really um, assimilate it in a way, culturally, into the area, into the Middle East. The, the deterioration continues, according to Levit, in the fourth stage, with the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948. In that period, artists shunned national and religious sentiments. Their artworks of this period corresponded with work produced in Europe, mainly in Paris and New York. The painterly style in Israel, we're talking about that, was titled Lyrical Abstraction by New Horizons, a group of artists led by the painter Yosef Zaritsky. In their work, Jewish religious and national symbols were obliterated from the painted visual plan after the devastating 1948 war. Having said that, national symbols were still present in the public space in the form of visual propaganda in what was called lower art. <coughs> in this stage, in the first years of the State of Israel, even the memory of the Holocaust was amputated as well. Abstract visuality reflected the melting pot strategy which tried to erase any cultural traces of individual or social identity. At the same time, however, we can identify the beginning of existential dissatisfaction with the state, which it intensified 
through the years. And here we can see an example of a painting by a painter, a, a Naftali Bezen, Bezen. And this is a painting which a little bit uh, has references in, in uh, Picasso the Guernica maybe. And it's called In the Courtyard of the Third Temple. And it represents actually in 1956, in the first day of the Sinai War, there was a massacre that the Israeli army performed in Kfar Qasim. And dozens of uh, Arabs were uh, slaughtered or killed because they didn't obey or didn't understand, didn't understand that there was a curfew. So here we can see really the beginning of the secular or very important uh, a part of the secular uh, Israeli <coughs> Or in another example, by another very prominent Israeli artist, he produced this sculpture after 67, and he named it, He Walked Through the Fields. He Walked Through the Fields is a, a novel by a very prominent Israeli uh, writer, and which glorified actually the, the, the new Israeli or the new Jew. And here he criticizes it, it's difficult to see, but he has no organs. I mean, he's not the type of a hero that, uh, you know, a sculpture should project. Okay. The fifth stage refers to the 1990s, which, according to Levit, projected the final detachment from national and religious values. This estrangement from Jewish values Levit attributed to the Oslo Agreement, the blowing winds of peace, economic privatization, the introduction of civil society, identity politics, and feminism. All of those weaved the conditions for the fine arts field to relieve itself of the ideological national and or religious burdens. Thus, the 90s rendered strong sentiments of ruthless, ruthless, ruthless desire for nomadism and preparation for departure from the land of Israel. Levit attacked artworks and exhibition influenced by postmodernism, postcolonialism, identity politics, and feminist rhetoric, the language of the global discourse. And he concluded. Boris Schatz hoped to establish in the land of Israel an art community which will erect a temple in the desert for the Jewish people returning to the homeland. However, it lasted only for three, four generations. After the beginning of the great vision and dream, Israeli art offers nothing to the Jewish soul. No heaven, no rescue. Israeli artists uprooted the land of the forefathers from their heart, even though they are physically roaming the land, as in their spirit, they abandoned the land through sea or air and displaced themselves in the desert. desert. And so it seems that the grave itself contempt rising from the, the studios prepares the stage for a counter-reaction that will radically change the cultural map of Israel. Ten years after the publication of Levit article, in 2008, Gideon Ofrat, a major art historian, and a resilient hegemonic gatekeeper wrote an article titled, Are We Witnessing a Cultural Revolution Among Those Who Were a Knitted Kippah or Yarmulka? Ofrat argues, quote, 
Artworks created by religious artists could not grasp the challenges stacked by the multi-layered conceptual complexity facing art in the 21st century. He go on, goes on in his elaboration to argue that it's feasible to view art created by religious artists as a sort of new beginning, an art field divorced and detached from the sophisticated intellectual discourse of postmodernism, thus succumbing to mediocrity. And why? Precisely because the overbearing religious characteristic collapses into the national one and the result is an illustrative, didactic, and unsophisticated visual representation. I'll just jump a little bit. Now, Ofrat is a profound believer in the Israeli Declaration of Independence, drafted by the founder of the State of Israel, promising the possibility of a liminal space which enables the paradox of Jewish yet democratic state in a secular context. In his response to the religious, to religious artists, Ofrat indeed identified the shift and his language broadcasted distress signs to the possibility of containing the phenomena. In, in 2000, okay, and I just want to show you, um, when Israel, the state of Israel was 60 years old, the major art museum erected the a, a six a, a exhibitions. Each one of them represented a decade. However, in all these uh, um, exhibitions, especially from 1989 and so on, there were um, non-Jews artists, like Palestinians, Jews, um, and all others. There was none, there was no religious artist in, this, uh, in, this, uh, in one of the, the shows or the exhibits. However, in 2012, Ein Harod, a major museum, mounted a comprehensive art exhibit titled Matronita. Its two curators were religious Jews, Deborah Lis and David Schferber. The exhibition turned out to be a challenging event in the Israeli culture ontology that year by introducing for the first time in the hegemonic art field feminist art created with orthodox women who were totally committed to halakha. Halakha is the Jewish religious law. Thus carving the premise for the return of the national embedded in the religious way of life. Concurrently with world feminist art, the works dealt with the humiliating situation and exclusion reigning towards women in the halachic regime and legitimized by male authority. In the diverse variety of works in Matronita, there was no insinuation of the collapse of the overbearing walls of halakha, only a beam of light directed toward the absurd situation in which women are placed within the existing halachic codex. The works have represented a cry against the oppressive male mastery. The visual language they chose was a conventional canonic art power artist utilizing a toolbox comprised of generic contemporary tools expressing the specific content of their livelihood a, a space. And I want to show you some work. Oops. Now to the left. This is a work by now a very prominent uh, religious, orthodox religious uh, artist, Andy Aronovich, 
and it was created in 2009. And it's a Jewish response to the explosive belts used by Muslim suicide bombers. The materials she assembled to create the vest were rolled, worn-out pages of prayer books, strings, and Japanese paper. Many hundreds of scrolls organized in dense layer, sharply constructed to the screws and nails wrapped in cylinders around the suicide bombers, explosive belt. The artwork referencing religious religion by the prayer book pages represent clearly its message of binary metaphor. Jewish religious humanism and culture against barbarism, transcendence, not violence. <coughs> this is another example by another uh, orthodox uh, painter, uh, Ruth Kastenbaum Bendov, and it's called Prayer Rugs. was created in 2003-2005. In her work, she presented a cross between Jewish and Muslim religion ritualistic articles, such as the parochet. Parochet is the it's a weaved or embroidered um, cloth that covers the, the ark in the synagogue where the, the Torah, the, the Torah book is placed. So she took the parochet, this uh, cloth. This is a painting, but the reference. And Muslim prayer rugs with text from the two religious holy scriptures. In this work, the parochet turns into a prayer rug. The Hebrew text is taken from the prayer, Alenu it, it is our duty to praise. And the word God, which was on the parochet, is written in Arabic. Bendov appropriated from the prayer, um, which is recited at the end of, of uh, daily prayers and also in the new year, only the positive parts, highlighting, and we bend our knees and bow down. Does custom bow? Bendov painting series project a yearning for peace and coexistence, expressed through presentation of interreligious inter metaphorical cross-breeding between Judaism and Islam, tantamount to the collapsing of modernist secular processes of purification. And I want to end up with another very prominent in the field now artist by, name, by the name of uh, Porat Salomon. What we see here is a Shabbat dinner, a Sabbath dinner, Friday night dinner. He's dressed up. I mean, he's an Orthodox Jew. That's his wife and the kid. And it was in 2010, and a neighbor of him was, uh, was murdered. So I, I will not elaborate on that. I'll, I'll give you <laughs> about yourself. The visual portrays a young family situated, of course, in a Shabbat dinner. The, the setting seems peculiar, however, the artist is a resident of Bat Ain, a settlement in the West Bank, which is considered to be one of the more <coughs> ideological Jewish set settlements. He's a major player, as I said, in the art field, um, through his art, and also through the Art Academy, which is financed by, of course, the government, that he founded lately in Jerusalem. Being a student of, of the late Rabbi Menachem Furman, Solomon views the religious paradigm as the only viable one for dialogue between Israelis and Palestinians. For Solomon, the issue of sovereignty over the Holy Mount is the core of the dispute between Israelis and Palestinians. 
And a quote. I'd like to bring together, that's what he's saying, architects, intellectuals, and religious people of all persuasions to plan a new holy basin area where the main shrine of the three religions are located in Jerusalem. As a wound at the heart of the world to create a space where people come to experience not what it, it but what is missing, where they come to yearn. People won't come to monuments of power or to phalluses reaching the sky, but to create the ultimate wilderness everywhere, including the Western uh, wall. And I just want to, to, to conclude that as Levit had predicted, the hegemonic art field is being vigorously contested now by a new school of religious artists. Many of them, West Bank settlers, who challenge or co-opt its core secular liberal values and use the language of modern and postmodern art to express their religious and nationalistic worldview. Okay. Okay, thank you very much to both of you, and also thank you very much for keeping the time, um, uh, which allows us, uh, gives us ample time for questions. So Sandra, I think, has their roaming mic, so if you'd like maybe to uh, keep your questions brief, so we can allow as many people possible. Uh, do you prefer taking a few questions at a time, or one by one? Is there any preference you have? More economical to take a few. Okay, yeah. so let's take a few, please. Maybe the gentleman over there at the back. Um, anyone else? Um, okay, so maybe the gentleman there and afterwards the gentleman here in the front, uh, and then we'll take maybe two more. So, yeah, please. Hi, hello. Um, Adam Nuhi, um, th thank you very much. That was that was fascinating. I, I have two questions, but I'll keep them both very brief. Um, one um, is more more geared towards uh, towards yourself. Um, it was with regards to um, you had mentioned very briefly um, the traditional Mina origin community or the Mizrahi community. Um, my question was related in the past couple of years, um, as as uh, many of you may know, the rupture between the Mizrahi community and the Ashkenazi community, or the communities of color in the Ashkenazi community um, has been magnified somewhat after the elections. Um, I'm, I'm not going to say it's made worse, but ma magnified at least, um, particularly in the media. Um, and a lot of that discourse sort of puts um, the Mizrahi community in the same sort of space as the religious community. Could I just ask, since you have two questions, could we arrive to the first? Very, so very, yeah, so, the, first okay, so the, very, the, first, the first question is, is literally if you, if you had any, anything to comment on that, um, more insight. Um, and then the second question was um, with regards to the art scene. Obviously, you heard this week um, that um, the National Theatre has decided to uh, perform um, in Kiryat Alba. My question was, um, what effect do you think government intervention on the art scene will have on the art scene? Thank you very much. And the gentleman here in the front, please. Uh, Professor Pellet, just uh, two quick questions. Um, the first one being, I know you've written extensively on the concept of ethnic democracy uh, within Israel, and I was wondering if you could comment how the religionization and your thesis on that has sort of impacted that um, to what extent it has, uh, if it has at all. And the second question being, um, uh, I know uh, Professor Guy Ben-Porat has, has written extensively on the secularization or the desecularization of Israel. And I was wondering if you could comment on what his thesis is and how it contends and contrasts with, with yours. Okay, let's take this group and then I'll promise I'll, we'll go for another one. Yeah, if you want to. <laughs> Is this working? Yeah. yeah. 
Okay, about uh, the traditional uh, Mizrahim, uh, well, there's a lot, that, a lot that can be said about it, but in terms of uh, religionization, there the process was uh, the most pronounced because uh, an ultra-religious political party, Shas, was established that uh, had a tremendous effect in moving uh, many Mizrahim from the category of traditional to the category of, of uh, ultra-Orthodox. And uh, of course this is only one, one aspect of the phenomenon of Shas, which, was, uh, which is the first and uh, so far only successful attempt to organize the Mizrahim politically uh, to, to uh, struggle for, uh, for the rights, for improving their conditions in, in the society, whether Shas actually does that or not, it's a big debate, but this is, uh, so the, this, uh, this awakening of the Mizrahim politically is closely tied to the process of religionization, and in terms of uh, tshuva, in terms of returning to religion, the Mizrahim has a great numerical advantage over Ashkenazim because of the work of Shas that, that is so uh, powerful. Um, now, uh, the, about uh, ethnic democracy, we're very privileged to have here the, the founder of uh, ethnic democracy, Professor Sami Smoha. <laughs> so, uh, and maybe he should answer your question, but, uh, <coughs> well, uh, Professor Smoha and I have an ongoing debate whether ethnic democracy in Israel is deteriorating or not. I contain that it is deteriorating, the democratic element is deteriorating and the ethnic element is strengthening and of course religionization <coughs> has a lot to do with it because in, in Israel and in, in Judaism in general but certainly in Israel religion, ethnicity and nationalism are completely combined within the category of Judaism. So religionization also means ethnicization and nationalization. So if, if that is happening then the, the, the democratic e uh, element in ethnic democracy is declining as compared to the um, ethnic element. Now, about uh, Gaben Porat. Gaben Porat wrote a, a book uh, on secularization in the 90s, which he himself said is, is very superficial secularization. It is secularization for consumer convenience, basically. It's not ideological, it's not political. And uh, what he didn't know when he wrote the book, but became evident after the book was published, it was for sh very short-lived. I mentioned the kosher restaurants. This is one of the issues he talks about. But in the 90s, it's true, there were uh, many, many non-kosher restaurants. Today, there are um, very, very few, and they are in the process of disappearing. So uh, th there was a counter-move of secularization in the 90s resulting from, first of all, neoliberalization of the economy and the Oslo peace process. But in 2000, the Oslo peace process uh, died or was killed. It's a debate by whom, but it was killed. So everything uh, reversed itself, including uh, a secularization that, that turned into uh, religionization. Okay, the whole outfield today, not only national theater, but dance and art and anything that has to do with culture is being attacked. So it's going to, I mean, and it's a political struggle. Let's say, for example, there are all kinds of institutions that the government supports. And 
There are more and more religious uh, artists and uh, directors, whatever, they are, that uh, are filling the places in these uh, institutions. And of course, they, they are trying to divert budgets to religious uh, projects. So that's what's happening. It's in the process now. Okay, yeah. Um, the back. So maybe we can have the gentleman here at the front and another gentleman there at the back and the lady here on the third row. So maybe, yeah. Oh, the gentleman next to you here, yeah. And then the lady and then the gentleman back there. One of your slides shows that the rate of religious people in Israel was uh, 77 in 1999, and it rose to 84 in 2009. You really believe that overwhelming majority of Jews in Israel are religious? Absolutely. I mean, okay. Okay, so that's the question of what, who is religious. Now let me just comment about the methodology of your talk. Now, the best way to pursue religionization of Israel is to present uh, manifestations of religi religion, religionization and secularization. And then you put them together, and then you decide to judge which is more, which is stronger. But your presentation was about manifestation of religion, not about secularization. And then you dismissed in the answer to the question, Guy Ben Porat, you know, about uh, all kinds of secularization. So I think you should decide, you know, how, what methodology that you use. You have to do both. You can't simply do it just once. Okay. Um, maybe the lady here first, and then the gentleman at the back there with the blue shirt. Yeah, please. Thank you very much for the talk. Um, my question is directed to you. So um, you were talking about some of the reasons why religionization exists or is proliferating more and more. And I was wondering if you would tackle BDS um, in trying to understand this religionization or if it's not uh, relevant to your study. So do you or do you not tackle it? is my question. Uh, thanks very much for your talk, it was very good. Um, I just want to ask um, if you could comment on the interplay between um, Israeli religionization and Islamic revivalism since the 1970s and to the extent to which these are parallel or, or, or um, parallel phenomena and, and, and how they interact with one another. Thank you. Okay, shall we take this group? Yeah. <coughs> okay, about uh, the, the ratio of uh, religious versus secular in Israel. Well, I, it depends how you define a secular. If you define uh, a secular by anybody who <coughs> say they're secular, okay, that's one thing. But if you define a secular by what the way they actually live, then there are hardly any secular people in Israel, any secular Jews in Israel. As long as we define secularity in the conventional way, 
Maybe there is a need to, to find a new definition of secularity that would be specific to Israel, specific to Israeli Jews. Because I agree that you cannot ignore the fact that about 50%, almost 50%, say they are secular. Although if you look at how they live, they don't live a secular life. I mean, not completely secular life. Because they perform many religious rituals which they will say, okay, it's, I don't do it because of religion, I do it because of national solidarity, and so on and so on. But national solidarity and religion in Judaism is one and the same thing. So maybe here uh, we really need to, to look for uh, another definition of, secu of secularity. But if we go by the conventional definition of secularity, that is somebody who's not religious, then are, there are very few secular Jews in Israel. Now, in terms of uh, secularization and religionization, I think that secularization was, uh, was a short-lived phenomenon, a short-lived process that happened for the reasons I just mentioned during the 90s. It was very superficial, which is what Ben Porat himself, himself says in the book, it's superficial. And because it, it's superficial, it did, not, uh, it did not last once the, the surrounding conditions changed. So I think overall, we, the process of religionization completely overwhelmed whatever secularization that, that happened in the 90s. Okay, now about the, the BDS. I think there's a broader issue here. BTS is one small element in the situation that makes Israeli Jews feel more and more besieged. I think the main reason is they know, whether they admit it or not, that there is no two-state solution anymore. So that Israel and the Palestinians live in actually one state. That state has existed for 50 years by now. It's going to remain one state. In that one state, Jews are barely a majority now, and they will cease to be a majority in a few years. This, this strengthens the feeling of, of siege that they have, and that pushes them to build a wall, not just a physical wall, which they did, but also a cultural wall, a wall of identity around themselves. In other words, they have to reinforce the Jewish identity because they, are, they, they know, or at least they sense, that they are becoming a minority within that political unit which encompasses Israel and the occupied territories. And BDS, I think, which I think in Israel is highly, the effects of BDS are highly exaggerated in Israel. It's, uh, <coughs> it's amazing. There is a kind of a phony government ministry called the Ministry for Strategic Affairs. Nobody knows what it does, but never mind. But in the budget of that ministry, of that fake ministry, two-thirds of the budget, and of course it's a few million shekels, two-thirds of the budget is for fighting BDS. And one-third is for thinking about strategic affairs. <laughs> so, uh, so I think BDS amplified into, within Israel by, for obvious reasons by the government, does contribute to, to religionization, but there's only one element, one small element in this, this feeling of, uh, of 
of being under siege, which I think contributes significantly to religi religionization. Now, in terms of a Muslim uh, religionization, like I said, we don't uh, we don't deal with that in in this project, and uh, I have not seen any evidence that the the Islamic revival has influenced Jewish revival in Israel, but. I know very little about the Muslim side of it, and maybe this is something that needs to be investigated. But at this point, I haven't seen uh, anybody who says there is a connection between these two processes. It's only in the outfield that are trying to, in an imaginary way, to actually frame the, 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 the essence of the existence in terms of uh, religion in order to really speak between the two communities, the Muslim and the Jewish. Not anymore in terms of the national or secular. Um, yeah. And there are some uh, attempts, not only in the art field, but some rabbis are doing it with Muslim Qadis. But I think it's, a, it's not really fruitful. <laughs> yeah, this, this is uh, one contributing factor to re religionization, I think it's minor, but it, it is there. There are uh, certain numbers of people, maybe growing numbers of people, who believe that since politically you cannot reconcile Jews and Palestinians, maybe religiously you could reconcile them. So we should move from the, from the plane of the politics of the nation state to the religious plane and then we'll be able to uh, find a common language. So this may be a factor that contributes, at least with some people, to their becoming more religious, which is not a direct reaction to Islamic revival, but it at least ties these two religions together. Okay, um, we've got a gentleman here in the front. Anybody from the middle or the back? So we'll take one question, the gentleman there with a tie, and another one here on the left, please. So we'll start one, two, and then right there at the back. Right. Um, thank you very much for the contribution you give to this debate. And on the debate between you and Professor Zmua, uh, I, to some extent, take sides with you. I see Israeli society as becoming more religious. But I think what, to some extent, would further prove the point is the fact that many Israelis do not necessarily recognize themselves with Orthodox Judaism, but with different forms. And to what extent do you think that Israel's uh, chief Rabbanut refusal to recognize other strands of religious Judaism, for instance, reform, which is most prevalent, for instance, in America and also in this country, form of Judaism, and Mazoti slash conservative Judaism, which is a kind of version of orthodox, is a hybrid between orthodox and reform. So to what extent do you think that um, including those two strands of Judaism would mitigate the effects of religionization, especially on the ethnic side. Okay, and the gentleman here on the left, and then at the right at the back. Thank you. Um, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but um, the way I always viewed it is that Judaism, to a certain extent, was always a secular religion in 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 the idea that God is dead, but He lives on through the law, and I think that. My question is, could we view this, in fact, as a re-religialization of Judaism itself, in the sense that 
or maybe we're bringing back the sacred into uh, Judaism by by inserting this nationalistic project that is bigger than individuals and that um, creates a sense of a, a greater goal. So I think that Zionism could be considered a religious secular movement in the sense that it brings back this religious identity of a group uh, Theory, almost as if uh, the reconquering of the land of Canaan is the new religious aspect to Judaism itself. I don't know if that resonates in any sense or if you have anything. And right in the back with the gentleman with the tie, please. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Um, I was wondering how do you reconcile this theory of religionization with the fact that in all recent polls, uh, Yael Apid's Yeshatid is is going to be, if there is an election, the largest party, uh, given the fact that it's un unabashedly secular, anti-Haredi, and, and is for a separation of religion and state. Mm -hmm. <coughs> so I think we've got the three questions yeah. Yeah. wrapped up pretty well. Okay. <coughs> now, about the reforms in conservative, first of all, in Israel they hardly exist in terms of numbers. And uh, so they, they don't, don't really play a role. Um, of course, the, the, the official rabbinate is not, not recognizing them, and uh, they have their good reasons for not recognizing them. But they do have, a, I would say, a, a secondary effect and this is their influence on what is called the Movement for Jewish Renewal. The Movement for Jewish Renewal is supposedly a secular, a secular Jewish movement or a movement of secular Judaism. Um, they, uh, they say we, we secular people need to uh, know Jewish religion not, not in order to uh, abide by it, but in order to be inspired by it. So they have all kinds of institutions, like they have secular rabbis, secular synagogues, uh, secular st uh, study groups that study what they call the Jewish bookshelf, and so on and so on. There you see an influence, and even there are organizational ties with the reform, and especially the conservative movement. And the, the, the movement for Jewish renewal likes to present itself as an antidote to religionization. But we don't think so. We think that it's simply another aspect of religionization. It simply is, uh, is meant to make the way back to religion easier for uh, Jews who consider themselves secular. Now about uh, Zionism and, and, uh, and religion and secularity, there, there, there is a term that we haven't used so far, but I should introduce it now, and that is uh, Messianism. Zionism is, of course, a messianic movement, and that's why the, the religious Jews opposed it at the beginning, because this is a messianic movement without a messiah. And it's not supposed to be like that, uh, you know, certainly since Shabtai Tzvi and that trauma and so on. So, uh, in a sense, I, th I, I think w w what you're saying is correct, but I would limit it to, uh, to Israeli Judaism and Zionism. I would not... Uh, I would not uh, apply that kind of uh, analysis to Jews uh, all over the world. I think Judaism outside of Israel is a different phenomenon. And about Yair Lapid, Yair Lapid is becoming religious himself. Yair Lapid goes to the Wailing Wall every opportunity. His wife participates in all these uh, arcane uh, uh, 
arcane religious rituals, I don't even know how they, to call them in English, and it's clearly that he completely gave up his anti-religious stance, and uh, he's actually quoting the religious very, very enthusiastically, because he believes this will really bring him to be Prime Minister of Israel, which you know, I think would be next to Trump, the, the second most scandalous thing that could happen, but uh, he definitely is neglect, he, he's abandoning his anti-religious, he has abandoned his anti-religious stance in order to uh, promote himself politically. Also what I think is <coughs> that uh, there is a movement from both sides, also in the Orthodox, as I showed you, the feminist Orthodox women are challenging <coughs> the, the Jewish law in the halacha, and on the other end, um, they can seem superficially uh, influenced from the uh, reform or constructivist, uh, this American and Western phenomena, but it seems like both sides are compromising with each other, and the, and the result is really religiousization of the whole society, which wasn't before. There was totally animosity between the secular and the religious. And this phenomenon is, uh, as you have said, reform and constructivist. It's not a, it's a very, it's a marginal phenomenon yet. Also, you can see it everywhere. Like, I remember when I, we live in the center of Tel Aviv, and when we moved there 20 years ago, on Yom Kippur, which is uh, the most holiest day that was in Israel, I remember my neighbors having parties on the roofs there with loud music and whatever. And in the last uh, six, seven years, there's no more. So it comes from both, even the, the secular are internalizing the, the religion, I think. Okay, I think we have time for two more questions, maybe. So we have one at the front, um, and the lady over there, please, as well. So the gentleman here, and the lady over there, and with that, we'll have to conclude, I'm afraid. <coughs> okay, um... My question, you were talking more or less about a comparison really between the 1990s and now and the increase in, in religious structure. And you mentioned two major factors. One, you talked about the secularization during the 1990s and you spoke about the Oslo peace process. What, what I felt was missing, I mean, at the start of the 1990s, there was an immigration of a million Russians that would have impacted on Israeli society. If, for example, you're talking about the appearance suddenly of non-kosher meats and non-kosher restaurants in Tel Aviv, um, is what we're seeing now, is it possibly a societal recorrection as we're dealing now with a generation on? And I'm surprised you didn't actually mention it at all. So did you make any kind of adjustment or include that in this comparison? Mm -hmm. And the lady over there, please, the back. Hi, um, I guess my question is kind of two-parted. The first being, you spoke a lot about how the society is becoming more religious, um, but I, don't, I didn't hear that much about the effects of that. Like, do you think it's a necessarily a negative thing? I, I kind of got a little bit that it was a negative thing, but maybe other positives involved. So that's the first part. And second part, um, I was thinking about the future, like the long term. Do you think it's just going to continue getting more and more religious? Um, do you think, like, eventually society, most people will, will be religious and will it cause more divides? Will there be a small faction um, that is anti? And, yeah, I guess 
Okay, but the, the Russian immigrants and the secularization, of course, you're absolutely correct. This is, uh, I, I should have mentioned it, but I should have mentioned many other things, but and, and didn't because of the time pressure. Yes, if without the million uh, immigrants from the, so from the Soviet unions, you would have found many, many fewer people in Israel or secular in, in any sense of the term. So, of course, they had a, a profound uh, secularization uh, effect on the society, but even this is being tarnished now because uh, th there is a, a bandwagon effect. People uh, like to join the winners. And so the second generation of, of uh, the former Soviet Union uh, immigration is becoming uh, like uh, everybody else in Israel, becoming more and more uh, open towards, uh, towards Jewish religion. It's, it's also a matter of immigrants always want to integrate, and wanting to integrate means uh, usually you, you go to the extreme. So because they want to integrate, they uh, now there's another uh, very big issue about the conversion of those of them who are not Jews by Jewish religious law, which is between a quarter and a third of those people. And uh, many of them would like to, uh, to convert, but the rabbinate makes it very hard for them to convert. So this is another uh, process that's going on. So I would say that initially they had an effect a secularizing effect, but this effect is, is being tarnished with time. Now, is uh, religionization good or bad? The question is for whom? I mean, if, if you are religious, then you're happy with it. If you, uh, if you are secular and you want to maintain a secular uh, way of life, then you're not happy with it. Uh, our, our lives are, have always been controlled to a very uh, significant extent by religious law, whether we want it or not. The most important thing is family law, marriage and divorce, which uh, <coughs> officially at least cannot be done outside of the rabbinic establishment, <coughs> and especially the issue is divorce. With the issue of divorce, there's really horrible tragedies because by Jewish law, divorce has to be granted by the husband, and if the husband doesn't grant it, then the woman can... Uh, can remain married but separate for many, many years. It's, it's a very complicated issue, but more minor things, like uh, there is a, a, st a struggle now over the uh, opening of mini-markets in Tel Aviv on Saturday. In, in the 90s, this phenomenon appeared that <coughs> mini-markets began to be open on, on Saturday, and of course <coughs> this, this is very convenient. And now there's a lot of pressure to close them on Saturday. And, uh, well, the issue of, of selling pork, I mean, for people who like pork, this is also an issue, and, uh, and, and so on and so on. So, but if, you, if you're on the other side and the other side is growing, then you think th th this is a good phenomenon. You don't think there, there's, uh, there's any problem in that. So I don't think you can say, is it good or bad? It's good for some people and it's bad for other people. It, I, I would say it's bad for anybody who still uh, holds on uh, to the values of the Enlightenment. For, for such people, th this is definitely a negative process. And I'll give you an example. In the art school that I teach, there are more and more uh, religious uh, students, and they have permission not to attend 
model uh, model drawing or painter painterly classes because it's the naked body. So. Okay. Um, I think we're going to have to bring it to a close. I'd like, first of all, to thank both of you for a really fascinating talk, uh, which brought a lot of rich evidence from a very wide, I think, spectrum of fields in Israeli society. So I think those of you who perhaps uh, wanted to get a very deep insight, but also a very wide overview, certainly received that today. And your opening example of uh, Ofer Winter contrasts sharply, I think, with another general, Ariel Sharon, who once met Elliot Abrams for a supper and was munching on a very, very big piece of meat, which seemed to be a bit too pink to be uh, uh, kosher. And Abrams asked him, Mr. Prime Minister, what are you eating? And he answered to him, some questions are best left unanswered. And they left it, <laughs> I left it at that. So that might give a little glimpse yeah. into the transition. So I'd really like to thank you both again. Uh, if you're interested in more talks on the 23rd of November, uh, Marisa Foy from the University of Geneva will be discussing here Algerian nationalism and Berber identity. Uh, and there is more information for that on that on the Middle East uh, Center's website. But uh, to end, please uh, help me thank you. Thank you.